on this episode of Backstories. It's a very unpleasant novel about small boys behaving unspeakably on a desert island. It only sold about 4,000 copies worldwide. Rocking my baby to sleep and I'm on PBS. It is the best production ever of any Jane Austen film adaptation. Every year I just keep getting older. Hi, welcome to Backstories the podcast that talks about the creative process behind some of our favorite authors and their work and other creators as well. We talk about music, we talk about even video games. My name's Amy and I'm with Johnson County Public Library in Indiana and I am here with Lisa Littner. She is actually the director of our library. We're very happy to have her here on the pod today. Hi Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. I love your podcast. Yay! Today, I'm going to be talking about, um, I guess it is kind of depressing, but here we go, <laughs> Lord of the Flies. Ah. <laughs> um, I actually started off thinking about Hunger Games. I had just finished reading the newest one, and so it was on my mind, and I thought, oh, that's really cool. I wonder what influenced Hunger Games other than Lord of the Flies. Well, the more I looked into it, the more... I got more interested in going farther back and um, talking about Golding. So that's what we're doing. So when did you first read Lord of the Flies? Oh, high school? Yeah, Wouldn't it be too. high school? Have yeah. you read it since then or no? I have not. Me and neither. I, I actually went back to make sure I was remembering it uh-huh. correctly. It was shocking how it came back. I mean, I could remember almost phrases. It was really interesting. So it's a sticky book. Mm -hmm. It really is. But it wasn't always thought of that way. (laughs) It was published in 1954, but it took a long time. No publisher wanted it. Yeah, they, they wouldn't touch it. He kept sending it out and it would be sent back almost immediately with a rejection letter. His daughter, her name's Judy Carver, she remembered getting those packages back and how it was such a big deal for her father because they had so little money he could hardly pay the postage to send it to the publishers. Now, had he published anything before that or was this his first? This was his first first novel and he was just sending it out cold and getting it back colder. (laughs) Eventually, Faber and Faber in London uh, they had a brand new editor named Charles Monteith, and he loved it. He was incredibly passionate about it, and he just forced it through hmm. to get it printed. At that time in the 50s, their literary advisor at Faber and Faber London was T.S. Eliot. Oh, wow. Gosh. They, yes. And they were very concerned and they kept it a secret that they bought the Savage Kids novel. That's what everybody was calling it in the publishing world. They kept it from him that, that they were going to publish it and they didn't let him see it. How funny. Yes. He actually found out about it through gossip. Hmm. Somebody asked him, oh, well, I heard your publishing company is publishing the Savage Kids book. And uh-huh. he said, what are you talking about? And they said, oh, it's a very unpleasant novel about small boys behaving unspeakably on a desert island. So Elliot went back and said, I need to read this. <laughs> but he ended up loving it and actually also being a supporter. Oh, wow. So there were no, they should not have been afraid of running it by their literary advisor. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. So it did get printed, but it flopped. Ah. 
flappity flap. Um, it only sold about 4,000 copies worldwide, and they actually pulled it out of print. But what happened is sort of colleges and the academic community, that was probably most of their sales, and they ended up really using it in classes. It was a, it was a sort of passed around word of mouth, and it ended up actually going back into print, and by the 60s, it had started selling very well and selling very steadily, and it's been in print, of course, ever since. Mm-hmm. But that was probably a very long 10 years for poor Golding yeah. <laughs> after finally selling a book and then having it pulled right away. Now, was this a one-hit wonder for him? I can't remember. Did he write other things that he, got acclaimed? He has written other books, and they were acclaimed. They just were more of the time and didn't have that lasting appeal. Uh. You can read other Golding books, but this was actually, this was his big one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, for some reason, it has really had a lasting impression. It was actually influenced by a lot of different things in Golding's life. Uh, he was a teacher, and so he actually got to see how, you know, small boys behaved uh, in real life, how they really were. <laughs> right. And then also, he was in the Army, and going to war mm-hmm. uh, really shocked him. Like, he went to war very full of uh, wanting to be a part of defending Britain, and he really thought there was a lot of justice. When he came back, he was very shocked at just brutality and the savagery that he saw, mm-hmm. and and he w- became very anti-war after that. That was all in the back of his mind when he was thinking about writing a book. Then he remembered a children's book that he had read called Coral Island. Mm. and. It's not as big here, uh-huh. but in England, it is a huge classic. It's one of those ones that everyone knows, uh, like Peter Pan or Mary Poppins. Wow. Yes. It was written in 1857 by R.M. Ballantyne. It was one of the very first kids' books that actually didn't have adults in it. Huh. Uh, so it was, it was very popular, and it was about three boys who got marooned on an island. Interesting. They behaved very differently. Mm. Uh, They were very pure and cooperative and very pious. Uh They did have fun adventures, but it was a very good, clean fun. (laughs) But it's still popular. It's been made into TV miniseries in Uh. in England, um, and it's still read today. Stevenson was also influenced uh, for Treasure Island by reading Coral Island, uh, which is interesting. Everything I do now... I see Stevenson. I never did before. And also uh, Barry for writing Peter Pan. The Lost Boys uh, was very influenced by reading a book where there weren't any adults. Ah. What Golding did is just tip it on its side and thinking about how men behaved in war and how kids behave on the playground. That's what influenced Lord of the Flies, which if you haven't read it since high school or haven't read it at all, It was about boys who were um, abandoned on an island and they sort of organized themselves. They had a de facto leader. They had a hunting party. They tried to keep a signal fire burning and like the hunting party was not very good at their turn on the signal fire. And so the two factions uh, very much were started to butt heads and it ended up very tragically for several of the characters. 
God, what a good memory you have from I was trying to... What? I remember a bonfire. I looked it up. I remember being terrified by this book. Keen, oh my gosh. And I I mean, I think when I first read it, I'm like, did this really happen somewhere? And, you know, because I was young and and dumb about that, you know, when I was reading it. But it really frightened me. It was very... it, It did have very scary parts. A lot of the smaller children that were on the island... They started having nightmares about a monster. Uh-huh. And this monster became sort of a legend on the island. And the the leader of the hunting party almost exploited that. Mm. Um, when they were out, they were trying to kill wild pigs. Uh-huh. But they were also, of course, looking out for the monster. Right. Um, that the littlies, the little kids, had sort of invented. And then it got spread throughout the island. Another interesting thing that happened was over the course of time, the children that were more on the peaceful side of things that were sort of taking care of the island and taking care of the fire, more and more of them started defecting because they wanted to be hunters. Interesting. The hunters were out. They were dirty. Yeah. They were, you cool. know, yeah, they were cool. <laughs> they were, you know, making spears. Yeah. And, and they actually did end up killing one of the wild pigs mm-hmm. and eating it. Mm-hmm. And then they they actually, this is the part that scared us, is they took the head of the pig and put it on a stake to sort of mark their camp. Yeah. And uh, that ended up being very frightening. One of the other boys stumbled across it, and it scared the bejesus out uh-huh. of him. And Me too. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> that ended up being a very scary element of the book, was finding was finding the pig's head and, and the events that followed. Golding actually said that Coral Island rotted to compost in his mind. And the unruly schoolboys during his years of teaching and also his other experiences put a new myth, put down roots into this compost. That's how he describes the the process of coming up with the idea for Lord of the Flies. That in itself is really intriguing, that sort of, you know, because, like, where do you come up with that story? And, and I mean, the whole idea of, you know, something absolutely disintegrating into something else. Yes, rotting and seeing the other side. But then having something grow out of it that Uh ended up being actually a good thing even yeah. though it's it's a it's a scary book right, right. <laughs> also another book has been cited as an influence for it and it's a book that i had not heard of called high wind in jamaica no i don't know that. i was thinking uh battle royale right because i had heard that was a inspiration for hunger games yes but then but maybe yeah it must have come maybe it came later i, I think, think right? it did come later uh-huh. um than the 50s but high wind yeah. in jamaica was published in 29 it was welsh uh and it was one of the first books that sort of took that innocent children idea, innocent child idea, and, uh-huh. and flipped it. It's actually about children that were taken by pirates. Their ship was overtaken by pirates, and all of the passengers were forced off, but the kids were hiding. And so when the pirates sailed the ship that they stole, when they sailed it off, the kids were there. Uh-huh. And they ended up sort of becoming like mascots of the pirate crew. Okay. And when that crew took over another ship, one of the the little girls, the youngest, she ended up killing the captain of that ship. Sort of in defense of okay. of the pirates. Ah. That that had taken over. They Ooh. they had sort of bonded in a weird way. Right. Her older sister ended up taking the blame for it. Huh. And the final scene of High Wind in Jamaica is the little girl 
playing in the schoolyard. They, they end up getting rescued and going back and finding their family in England. And so she's playing in the schoolyard and sort of like nobody knows she's the murderer. Right. And, and sort of what lurks behind children and that sort of ominous feeling. And High Wind in Jamaica was made into a movie too. But huh. again, I it, I have no memory of it. It's not been in our kind of... It mu- I think it was popular and then it just England, disappeared. Yeah. But it was one of the things too that also influenced Lord of the Flies was sort of there was a gate open where children could be seen in a different light than innocent and 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 then you know it's kind of interesting to think like where do they go after that experience right after that trauma or mm-hmm. you know of, of being you know murdering someone even in defense yes like you know back then they didn't really have great therapy no <laughs> for kids to go through to try to to try to make sense of whatever their trauma was so. yes that's never addressed mm-hmm. i don't think in any of the even even items that are influenced like hunger games or battle royale i don't they don't really talk no, about you just afterwards are surviving sort of afterwards yes huh. lord of the flies has been censored over the years of course not so much modern times uh-huh. but over the times the American Library Association ranks it as the eighth most challenged classic book in America. Again, not so much really anymore, but for a long time, seeing kids that violent, parents did not want their kids sure. to read it so sure. or have it in the classroom. Hmm. Its influence has been, I mean, years and years and years. And it's spread not only to the book world, but popular music. The band U2 has a song that was influenced by what? Lord of the Flies. I love U2. What was the... Shadows and Tall Trees. Oh. It's, that is the chapter title of chapter seven. Huh. The Offspring, Iron Maiden. They have a song called Lord of the Flies. Okay. Panic at the Disco refers to Lord of the Flies in one of their songs. And... The very current K-pop band, BTS, Okay. they have a video for their song called On that was apparently influenced by Lord of the Flies, and I did not believe this, so I watched this video today. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have heard the song, but I have not listened, I had, hadn't watched the video. For goodness sake, it most certainly is. So they're um, on an island. They're on Dancing an island. Dancing on a or no? Well, <laughs> the, actually... Find this video and watch it. It's very cool. It starts off that they are sort of on a deserted island. And then through the course of it, they sort of walk through these stone gates. Okay. And then one of the band members blows a conch shell, which plays a part in Lord of the Flies. They actually find a conch shell and and they use it to signal each other because you can blow through the big shells and it Mm -hmm. makes like a noise. So the BTS member blows this conch shell, and then all of a sudden, they have a dance battle with a rival group. All right. That is, I can't wait to see this. So, But I was very surprised. I wasn't expecting yeah. it to be that so, directly influenced by Lord of the Flies. But, so parallel. Huh? But sure enough, there they are. Uh, so I thought that was really fascinating. Since, and that's since really that's, recent. It's very recent, uh-huh. and also um, it's a Korean band. It's not yeah. an American band, yeah. and so that international influence is there and of course television shows like survivor sure of course lost yep obviously yep. but also the simpsons 
They have a whole episode oh, called okay. Das Bus, where their bus, their school bus crashes, and they end up getting marooned on an island. Excellent. And Bart is so excited. He's like, I'm glad we're stranded. It'll be like Swiss Family Robinson, but with more cursing. We'll live <laughs> like kings. <laughs> that is also the Simpsons episode that introduces the monkey butlers. <laughs> because but does, does Lisa correct Bart because she's read the book? Or <laughs> I don't remember, but probably. Book. I'm sure she's anti-monkey butler as well. <laughs> and then because of sort of the success of survivor uh-huh. they actually did try to do it with kids i don't know if you remember wow. kid nation no no 2007 cbs they did a show called kid nation where they had kids sort of move into a town alone and see oh, maybe i did see that it was sort of i think it was almost like a it reminded me of like a western yeah, ghost town yeah. or cabins uh-huh. yeah but they had they had kids but those kids were very supervised right um of it course. was it's, yeah. yeah there's producers all around and stuff But then in 2009, in England, Channel 4 did a show called Boys and Girls Alone, which... Never heard of it. It was very similar to Kid Nation, Uh but the kids were always watched over, but less uh, one-on-one contact with adults. Okay. And that ended up... It was very shocking how fast the kids started bullying each other. Oh, (laughs) no. Again, the trauma. Yes. To to have your child, you know, be a star in some reality show. Oh, goodness. Oh, and Channel 4 actually um, acknowledged everything going on and said, it is a bit Lord of the Flies, but there's no murdering. (laughs) So, you know, that's a a good thing. Again, Lost refers to Lord of the Flies directly Uh on many occasions. Yeah. But it's also referenced in tons of other shows. Sopranos, X-Files, Seinfeld, Walking Dead. Stephen King, Lord of the Flies, is one of his favorite books. It's in his top ten every time. And he named Castle Rock, which is where he sets a lot of his stories. Yeah. There's a television show called Castle Rock. Uh-huh. That's based on a landmark from the Lord of the Flies island. Never they, knew that. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And also Rob Reiner named his film production company Castle Rock. Okay. Which I always thought was named after Stephen King. Me too. I'm a genius. Me too. I always thought. Every time I saw it, I was like, oh, it's Stephen King somehow behind yeah. this. That's no. not the case. No. Rob oh Reiner gosh. named it after the Castle Rock and Lord of the Flies. Yeah. Also, besides Hunger Games, of course, Battle Royale. That was actually written in 96. Okay. So yes. way, way, way after. Uh-huh. If, if you aren't familiar with Battle Royale, it is um, a Japanese film about kids that fight to the death for a game show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Similar mm-hmm. to Hunger Games. Yeah. It's by uh, Kaushin Takami. But there are also tons and tons of other kids' books about deserted islands. That sort of fantasy of being without adults and being stranded and surviving is really popular. Yeah. I will say I read one as recently as last year. Uh It was the Young Hoosier Book Award winner, Scar Island. Okay. And that, to me, was one of the ones that was very most directly influenced. It's kids, and they're on an island, <laughs> and they're actually there for, like, juvenile detention. It's sort of a kid's prison on this island. All right. And there is a huge storm, and so they end up without adults. 
and they actually divide into two groups. They have the good kids Uh that are trying to, like, get the boat and get to their parents, and Mm -hmm. then they have the other kids that just want to stay on the island and live wild and just... Rule themselves. Yes, and pretend that the adults are still available so that they still get food deliveries, like fake fake things, Uh Um, and... So it's it was very interesting. I thought that was vi- that was the most direct retelling I've seen recently. recently. Hmm. But there's tons of others. If you look up Deserted Island in the juvenile fiction area, you will see tons and tons. Yeah. So well, survival stories. Too. I mean, I love survival stories. Oh, for sure. Um, Hatchet. Yeah. All the Gary all Paulson those, kids all books. All those books. Mm-hmm. I just really and I still and I like reality shows too. Of course. Um, or, or lost or things like that. Just I, I love the idea that, you know, people can survive something. But remind me, how, do, how does Lord of the Flies end? Oh. I don't remember. Okay, so Lord of the Flies. The leader of the sort of non-hunter group, his name is Ralph, pretty much realizes that the leader of the hunters is going to kill him. And so he's sort of waiting for that to happen. There have been several other kids that have been killed. One accidentally, the other in sort of a strange ritual. Honestly, y'all, this book is scary. I know. I'm like, why did did we read this in high school? I'm banning it. How did it become a classic? (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, why did I read this in high school? I must have been terrified. So he is actually knocked out. Uh And when he comes to... They are being rescued by uh, army helicopters that did see the signal fire. All right. And when they're rescued, their res- their rescuer actually makes a direct reference to Coral Island. Huh. Saying, oh, you boys, you've been here just like Coral Island, huh? Interesting. <laughs> and... I'm poor, sure poor Ralph is laying there going, it wasn't like Coral Island at all. Right? <laughs> it's the opposite. Oh. But yes, they did get rescued. But again, you don't really know what happens. That was afterwards. afterwards. Like, yeah. no. I no. guess that would be an interesting kind of fan fiction story. There probably are some. I'm sure. You yeah. Know, what happened after. Like what happens to these poor boys. Like mm. the head of the hunters, his name is Jack Meridu. And it would be interesting to see what happens, like how he returns to right. civilization. He becomes an adult. Yes. But also their names are taken also from the characters in Coral Island oh. because there's a Jack in Coral Island okay. as well. So it is kind of interesting. All the parallels and things that we may not get as Americans, but right. probably if you're British and you've read Coral Island as a kid, it's like, it's as ingrained as Peter Pan or... So or yeah, kind or of homages of to... Yes. Mm. That is what I have for... um, It's our high school uh, language arts class today. (laughs) And to continue on the theme, Lisa will be talking about Jane Austen. Yeah, one of my favorite things. Of course. It is also one of my favorites. I love her humor. You just don't think of women from that time period as being allowed to be funny. That's right. Yeah, she she's very what very much known for her wit and dialogue for sure. So so yes, I came to Jane Austen. I was introduced to Jane Austen uh, as a junior in high school. Mrs. Capicelli. There you go. She said I needed to read Pride and Prejudice and do a book report on it. <laughs> and I got that book from the library. I opened it up, read a few pages and I'm like, nope, I'm not doing this. So I <laughs> 
<laughs> you flip to the end. Okay, it's only it's only two hundred. I can no. make it. I'm sure I read like, the word barouche or something and said I have no idea what that is, so forget it. But I I went back to Mrs. Capicelli and I said, Look, I could read The Hobbit by Tolkien. It's so much bigger. It would be like a bigger yes. challenge for me. So I convinced her to let me read The Hobbit. So I never read Pride and Prejudice. Oh. <laughs> so fast forward to 1996, and I am staying home with my new baby, oh, my first yeah. child. And I'm just flipping through the TV channels while I'm rocking my baby to sleep. And I'm on PBS and the 1995 version of Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth. Oh, be still my and heart. Jennifer o. And Jennifer Oh, she was the best it Elizabeth is, of all time. It is, the, it is the best production ever of any Jane Austen film adaptation. Yes. So, so I'm watching it, and something rings a bell. Like, gosh, you know what? You know, and I remember back in, you know, in high school, I was supposed to read this book. So I and I've but I've always loved period films. Yeah. So so once this once this came, was introduced to me, I just devoured it. I was like, oh my gosh, I couldn't wait to the next week, and there was another episode coming on. And then um, because I was on maternity leave, I went to the library and checked out all you know all the Jane Everything. Austen books yeah. and started reading. Nothing them. but time. So so um, I really really fell in love with Jane Austen because of film adaptations. And there are a lot of people in that same boat. So I'm part of the Jane Austen Society of North America. I've been a lifetime member since 2013. That's so cool. Who knew there was a Jane I Austen so Society? Fun. Yeah, there's an indie region. I was part of the Louisville region. Oh, and that's it's amazing. Been, there's about 5,000 people in that group. Oh my and, gosh. And a, and a lot of, and we come from two, you know, really three different segments. One, you know, some are scholars yes. who, who've been studying Jane Austen, doing papers on Jane Austen, doing presentations on Jane Austen. Then they have the folks who just picked up the books probably like me they well they read them in high school when I didn't <laughs> um, and then there's the group of folks who have watched a film fell in love with the film and the characters and then gone and read the books mm -hmm. so so I fall in that last category which sometimes if you're really snobby about Jane Austen you think you're not you know a real Janeite or something but, but you read them but eventually you are, you are. <laughs> and so and so if 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 you out there know, she had six novels, four of them published in her lifetime. Um, four of them uh, I adore amazingly. So my favorite book is Persuasion. Ooh, that's and a good one. Tied for second is Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility. And then I like Emma, but every once in a while I get really annoyed with her. Yes. But she's my number four. And then for some reason, I'm not the biggest fan of Mansfield Park. Uh, or Northanger Abbey. Oh, I kind of like Northanger. Do you? Abbey. I can Sorry. see how you'd like. If you're, you know, you gotta like gothic novels, yes. right? And I was never a fan. I was never a fan of that. Um, and even the films, I'm like, but, <laughs> but, um, but so, so that's my. Those are my six. You know, my favorites. She also has written tons of what they call juvenilia. So lots and lots of things she's written during her childhood, like the oh. history of England. She wrote the history of England with some, you know, pictures she drew and stuff and some uh, lots of other stories and stuff. So um, at her death, she had, um, I think it was three publications um, kind of working on. One was Sanditon, which I don't know if you've uh, heard. That was on PBS and BBC. Somebody 
Did somebody finish that? Yeah, there was only like 24,000 words. And then um, Andrew Davis, who is like amazing. Like he, he wrote the 1995 Pride and Prejudice yeah. uh, miniseries. And he's done a lot of adaptations uh, of historical books that uh, he he finished writing Saint Etienne for the film, yes. uh, wrote a screenplay for it. And on, you know, the BBC... Um, that we got in the U.S. got to see through PBS. It it's only like half the story because it got canceled. What? So there's a big controversy. You can't can, you can't <gasps> stop it in the middle. Oh no! <laughs> and you know some J you know some hardcore Jainites. That's a hard it's a hard version to watch because it's got some more modern stuff going on. Oh. Uh, so so you either love or you hate it. And but I would love to see another season of it to kind of see how do they wrap this all up. Yes. They they had a, an okay tidy ending, but you really you really don't know. You what can tell to the characters. got cut off. Yeah, and then she wrote um, another unfinished novel called The Watsons. And then um, she also had a book called Lady Susan that was never published. But it was turned into a film called Love and Friendship with Kate Beckinsale. Oh, I don't, um, do I remember, remember that? I think I remember it. <laughs> Let me see. 2016, I'm pretty sure. I didn't realize. I've heard of Lady Susan that, um, as a title. Yes. Um, maybe that was 2014. It was right in that time period. Yes, but I didn't know that was the movie. Yeah. So, okay. so you can. It's on Amazon Prime too. Yeah. So if you want to try to catch it, you can. Yes, I will. So, um, I think what I love about Jane Austen so much is that you know she wasn't afraid to talk about you know women, right? Because mm-hmm. the it really most of the novels cent, you know centralize around women characters and their ability to marry. Uh, their expectation to marry oh. um, and their need to marry, right? Because women weren't educated back then. You couldn't nope. just go, you know, become the CEO of some you know, <laughs> business and, and make a make a living for yourself. So she and her own family, you know, she grew up uh, the daughter of a, a of a clergyman mm-hmm. and her mother had some ties to aristocracy. And luckily for them, one of the her brothers, she had five brothers and a sister. Goodness. Or was it six brothers and a sister? Goodness um, gracious. Six brothers and a sister. Uh, one of her brothers became an heir to a family member who was v- extremely wealthy. Oh, So yes. that was Edward Knight. He became, um, Edward Austin became Edward Knight. He was adopted by the family and made the heir. And he inherited like three estates when his adopted guardian or father died so because of that he was able to help out Jane Austen her sister and her mother when Reverend Austen passed away oh yeah because that's a theme in some of the books absolutely is that the the father passes and then the daughters are desperate they have to get there I don't know how many pounds a year yep. from their husbands. Yeah. <laughs> they have to so, find a man who has enough so money. So it's really similar to Sense and Sensibility, like Jane Austen's real life. Uh, so, like, they depended on an annuity. So there were some investments made for their family, and they could draw on those investments. So they were um, getting about 210 pounds a year, and that's Mrs. Austen and Cassandra getting that from kind of investments they drew on uh-huh. and um, Eleanor uh, Dashwood and her sisters and mother live on about 500 pounds a year and then her brothers also gave them about 50 pounds a year to help them out with things and then later on in life when Reverend Austin passes away Edward Knight does give 
uh, his mother and his two sisters like rent free cottage on his estate. So that really, really helps. Yes, because that's another theme in the book is yeah. they don't have anywhere to live or they're traveling around and staying with people, but they don't have a home. And that's exactly what happened to the Austin women. So they, they bounced around for a few years after Reverend Austin died before they were able to get the cottage. And so she stayed and did most of her writing at Chawton Cottage, which was on her brother's estate. So just the themes of money are talked about, which a lot of times that really wasn't brought up in you know the novels of that time. And then really just, again, that some women are absolutely forced to marry in order to just maintain living, right? Yes. Because they might, they feel like they're a burden on their parents or or their parents' fortune isn't really large enough to to maintain them as older adults. Yes. So, so marriage is, you know, a, a real central theme. But she's also just so talented at bringing in, like, the snobbery of the gentry sometimes. Uh, so, like, Lady Catherine de Bourgh. That was exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> From Pride and Prejudice. And, you know, um, her brother and sister, I mean, the brother and sister-in-law in Sense and Sensibility are, you know, snobs. and so Everyone she, in Fanny Bryce's life. Oh, right. <laughs> Poor Fanny Bryce. I know. And maybe that's why, like, I don't like that book so much it's just like gosh it's it's to me it's a really depressing novel because you know she's sort of allowed to live at her rich relatives home but is never really part of the family right she's always sort of the poor relative she has to hide in the room with no heat i know right (laughs) just horrid just horrid i don't remember that much about it but that i remember her hiding like she had her own little closet or something where she would go and to put the money in perspective, it's kind of interesting that she really only earned just under 600 pounds after taxes for all of her writings during her lifetime. Wow. So that's equivalent about $17,000. So that didn't all come to her in one year. That's like over four or five years. She's, you know, getting these funds. So it was a little bit extra money for the for her. A <laughs> little bit. Writers out there are like, yep. Yeah, they know, right? 17,000 pounds in, like, 2019. So when you think about, like, the Darcys and the Bingleys and how important it was, like, for Mrs. Bennet to push her children, her daughters, to try to to catch Mr. Bingley and his 5,000 pounds a year. Oh, yeah. You know, that would have been the equivalent of basically hitting the jackpot. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, in in today's money, it's about 200,000 pounds. But, you know, Mr. Darcy, you know, you're talking... Almost 800,000 pounds a year yes. for that. So, um, and then his sister, Georgiana, has a fortune. Like, so when she marries, who, you know, her husband's going to get 30,000 pounds. And when you think about, like, gosh, the the Dashwoods and Sense and Sensibility only had 500 pounds a year. Yes. You know, I, ju- I just find that really interesting. And then, how is it fair that the... That the Bennett sisters are, you know, because they're born female, will never have part of their family's estate. No, they don't get any land, any nope. home, any building. So it's an entailed away from them, right? Yes. But now not in Emma. So Emma Woodhouse, though, she will inherit part of her estate because of the way, I guess, you know, granddad wrote up, you know, the the, the rules of inheritance. <laughs> so, you know, just to, you know, you, you might end up lucky like Emma. She'll always be wealthy. Yes. No or matter Georgiana. If she, yeah, yeah. Or Georgiana. If they marry or not. 
So they have choices. If they don't want to be married, they can choose not to marry um, and still feel like they're living a really comfortable life. Yeah, same. Um, they're not going to end up like Miss Bates, yes. right? Where you're just absolutely kind of destitute, relying on apples from, you know, Mr. Knightley yep. um, in order to make it through the winter, right? Ugh, so money is, I think, one of the things that really intrigues me about her novels. And it's interesting, too, because it seems like when you read historical fiction of almost any time period, it either is talking about the very poor or the aristocracy and the very rich. You don't see this sort of what would have been the middle class. Yeah. You never see that. Yeah. And so this is interesting, too, because this is sort of that middle class. Right. Of especially if you're a woman alone. Yes. Because you don't you might be very respectable, you might have a place to live, but you're still eating apples Absolutely. that people are giving you. Right. <laughs> right. And so I I just I think she's a brilliant author. And and also to be writing and trying to get published during the 18, you know, 1810s, right? Yeah. That that it was, you know, really difficult for her to get published. Her brother Henry actually had to kind of act on her behalf and that all of her novels during her lifetime were written by a lady uh, in quotation marks, right? Oh, yes. They so, were all anonymous. So, yes. I mean, but of course people did somehow find out, you know, who she was, but she still published them, you know, as anonymous. Now, right after her death, they published, uh, her brother and sister, Cassandra, published Persuasion and Northanger Abbey. So mm -hmm. they did kind of reveal who she was in, yes. in those novels. And then since then, all of the novels miraculously almost have never gone out of print, right? Oh, so I in 200 so. years, yes. it's pretty remarkable. And that some of, some of the years... Pride and Prejudice will outsell some of the first runs of best-selling novels. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's pretty I, If amazing. there's a new film adaptation or a new BBC or a new something, a new biography comes yep. out. Well, I do think every time there's a new film adaptation, there's renewed interest. Oh, yes. And I did bring I did bring some of my favorites, right? Because I think film is important to keep Jane Austen alive. The visuals of that time period are just lovely. Oh my I gosh, mean, right? Just the that particular aesthetic is just beautiful. Because there is some, there is some, you know, really wholesomeness about it. But then there's some flirtiness, right, oh, about yeah. it too. That that's really kind of, it's a it's a great time period in history. Um, so, like we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. the 1995 Pride and Prejudice maybe oh. one of the best things ever made miniseries with uh, Just Jennifer. Perfect. And, Every uh, Colin. beat is perfect. Absolutely. In that. My funny story is I was working at the library in Bloomington, Indiana. Uh huh. And of course, it was VHS. Absolutely. Back in the day, it was yep. on six tapes. <laughs> and it was the weekend, I was off. And I took the first three home, thinking that would last me the weekend. Sure, sure. I watched all three. Boom, and then boom, boom, right? <laughs> God only knows time in the morning, like 1 a.m. or something. I snuck back into the library what? with my key and got the last e three. <laughs> Waving at the security camera, like, it's just me. I forgot my 
purse. (laughs) No, I snuck back in and I checked those out because I just couldn't imagine that I could even wait until the next morning. Right. Or it must have been a Sunday, so I Uh couldn't have gone in until one o'clock. Yeah, that wasn't happening. Yeah, I had to get. I I snuck back in. I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty much perfection. I mean, I can hear the music playing in yes. my ears right now, and and to see, I think, really importantly, like you read those books and you don't know what a barouche is as no. an American, you know, teenager, um, and you find out what they are, right? Mm-hmm. And you go, okay, I get it now. Yes. It's so it's so nice to see a film and then read the books and then really, really let the, the, the that world come to life even in a different way because of course adaptations are usually never be- better than the book so my second favorite film adaptation is persuasion oh. by 1995 1995 was the golden year of films for Apparently jane Austen. so so that's the amanda root version and there just isn't anything to compete with it and then you know pride and prejudice and Emma have enormous amounts of film adaptations. I'm just going to touch on a couple of really unique ones. Pride and Prejudice um, from 2003 starring Cam Heskin and Orlando Seal. And it has like a Church of Latter-day Saints feel to it. Like it's oh. set during, yeah, it's set in, in modern times. And that is uh, the vibe that, it, you know, it, it is reflecting. It's amazing. It's wonderful, fun, fun. Um, oh, that sounds so version. interesting. I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah, it's great and I think it's on uh, it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime too. somewhere yeah. and then Brian Prejudice from 2004 have you seen that the Bollywood yes. version oh, oh yes. my gosh so good. oh my gosh just wonderful so that's set in India and that I think their marriage system at that time was also very similar it had sort the same of right sort of. yeah like you had to kind of get permission from your parents or they would Find you somebody, right? And when you kind of went outside that, you're going to get criticized and and uh, possibly kind of shut down. Yes. (laughs) And even, I mean, even now, there's that Indian matchmaking show on Netflix, and like just comparing their horoscopes, and it's it's fascinating. Yeah, I've um, read something about Indian women who have book clubs about Jane Austen because the themes are so similar to their lives. So that is really interesting. And then interesting, there's some like kind of fan fiction type things and Death Comes to Pemberley, which was a... Uh, 2014 miniseries of based on P.D. James's novel, so it takes place after Pride and Prejudice ends. It's like kind of what happens afterwards. Oh, interesting. Oh, the movie is or the the miniseries is so great, uh, and the book can't. Well, you know. yeah. <laughs> and then um, Lost in Austin is like a time travel. Oh. So a modern day woman living in uh, Hammersmith, you know, a suburb of London gets transported back in time because she loves uh, Pride and Prejudice so much. Oh my gosh. So she becomes like she she gets she trades um, Elizabeth Bennett's role. Like Elizabeth gets transported to modern day England and oh, she gets do you get to see that? It's marvelous. <laughs> marvelous fun. And then um, the other story is my best friend uh, many years ago gave me Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. And I was such a snob when it came to Jane Austen books. I was like, thank you, dear. And I put it on my bookshelf. Um, And then a few years later, I'm like, you know, that was my best friend who gave me a book. I need to read it. (laughs) So I read it and I loved it. Oh, my gosh. gosh. It was so good. And then, of course, um, Lily James comes out with uh, She stars as Elizabeth in that uh, let's see, what year was that? Um, 
2016. Oh, so, gosh. so good, good times. I'm there. glad it's good. Yeah. There's so many pastiche. I shelved the other day. There's a mystery series where Jane Austen is the protagonist, the Austen Society. Oh my gosh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, I, I think I just shelved. Somebody must have returned them, okay. and I shelved them, and I was like, well, this is interesting. Okay, <laughs> when we're done here, you're going to have to help me look through that. I'll. Look up Austin Society. So that's great. Yes, I don't know if they're good, but somebody liked them because they had to have checked out more than one if I was shelving a chunk of them. (laughs) Well, there was an interesting um, Jane Austen book club movie, and then Uh uh, that I wasn't really a fan of, but you know, it was fun. And then Austin Land, same thing. Like for whatever reason, I just did. Yeah, whatever. It wasn't a thing. But there are so many, so many other versions. You know, of uh, like an Emma Clueless, of course, is, is inspired by Emma, and um, just some just some fun fun stuff. And then there's a 2020 version of Emma, which has truly the best costumes <gasps> and set design. Like you you look at their costumes, and I was lucky enough to go to like a textile museum in Bath, England, oh, uh-huh. and also the Victorian Albert Museum that has wonderful, uh, you know. The actual, actual clothes. clothes, yes. <laughs> and you, man, the costumes in the the twenty twenty Emma is they're just fantastic, and also the the set design is amazing. Oh yeah. But the nineteen ninety five version, it's still the winner. Uh, is a uh, Kate Beckinsale, my my favorite. So it is worth sneaking back into work. Sure. You're going to take my key away now that you know. <laughs> I, would I will never be okay do with that you. now. I would be okay with you. On, uh, to, to get your to get your um, sorry Monroe finished, County Public Library stuff, so. I did fess up the, oh, on well, Monday good. and then some other like notable um, favorites again 1995 Ang Lee directed Sense and Sensibility oh of course with Emma Thompson and Kate Delight Winslet just wonderful just like you know to me the ultimate and then let's see oh there was another version of Emma of course with um. Gwyneth Paltrow, Paltrow. And she did a great job. Yes. I think a lot of people in England were also surprised at how, yes. at how well she played Emma. Sassy. Yeah. Uh, but, but and you know, uh, Jer- Jeremy Northam was a really good Mr. Knightley. Uh, <laughs> but Mark Strong, perfect too. So, so just really good stuff. And we can't, of course, forget Kira Knightley's version of, of Pride and Prejudice yes. too. So that's, that's a favorite a lot of people have. And I think it's just so amazing because, like, every five, ten years, another version comes out, and then a whole nother group of fans kind of develop from exactly. it. Exactly. So I think she's going to be popular for the next 200 years. I would think so. It When you do reread it, because I reread it for a book club uh-huh. a few years ago, I reread um, Pride and Prejudice, and it was so fresh. It, it was. was absolutely still fresh. It felt relevant. It felt, you know, the dialogue. It wasn't hard to understand. Yeah. Definitely. And, and as you age, you kind of get new things from it, too. Yes. Like, like somebody suggested to me that I read Northanger Abbey again after I turned 40. And it did help. It really did. <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, Persuasion, which is my absolute favorite novel, you know, every year I just keep getting older. And it's that sort of timeless story of, you know, rekindled love, second chances that I, what do they call it, her autumnal, you know, (laughs) autumnal story, you know, of of love lasting long and, you know, hope. Hope (laughs) so. So, yeah, that's kind of my, that's my uh, journey through Jane Austen and how... 
how even, you know, during the pandemic, I've revisited my favorite films, reread some of her books, and just, it's like, it's like, you know, hanging out with an old Mashed friend. potatoes. Absolutely. Comfort food. Absolutely. <laughs> I am with you there. I Now I totally need to sneak back into the library and get the miniseries again. Okay. Well, I can't wait to try the, the mystery series. That's oh, going to be well, fantastic. We'll go, we'll go and find that. I do not remember the author's name. Oh, but, we'll find it. <laughs> but I, I believe it's called the Austin Society okay. Mysteries. All right. Well, thank you so much oh, for coming to the podcast. It's super fun. You're welcome anytime. If you are a new listener, welcome. If you've listened before, we're so glad to have you back. I hope you're having fun. On the next episode of Backstories. Coming up, we have a lot of exciting new things. I know we're going to be talking about Carrie Fisher, and we're going to be talking about Margaret Wise Brown, oh, wow. who wrote Good Night Moon. Stop back, give us a listen, and thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. Backstories is a production of Indiana's Johnson County Public Library.